So uh, we're continuing a series in the book of John, in the epistle of John, but also a series in, uh, in what I've titled Christian Assurance. And I've been stressing over the past few weeks that um, we are, I think this is one of, this is John's main aim, at least in closing his epistle. Certainly also one of the main aims of him writing the epistle is, he says, to teach um, Christian assurance uh, and that um, it's only right that John should consider that Christian assurance and just having confidence in what God has promised or what he kind of refers to in uh, I read in verse 13 a moment ago knowing that we have eternal life now I've said over the past few weeks that that should be a concern for for John because he's writing to a congregation that has been affected and has been dealing with the influence of false teachers, the intrusion to be uh, more, or the invasion even of false teaching and false teachers that has, as John has said, um, even divided the congregation itself. So in writing to these Christians, um, it becomes a pastoral issue that he has to deal with, both to show where these false teachers have gotten things wrong, but also uh, to remind them that they can, ha- they can be confident in their faith. Um, and so it's in, in light of that, in light of this that, that overriding sort of context and theme, knowing that actually John is speaking about Christian assurance and those things that Christians can be confident of and in because of their faith in Jesus Christ. It's in that context that we come to these verses, uh, 16 and 17 especially, that generally are recognized as some of the more difficult passages in the New Testament, in fact, perhaps in the entire Bible, quite difficult um, verses to interpret. And I don't think anyone ever claims to have a kind of dogmatic, um, perfect interpretation of the text. I think Christians generally recognize that there are difficulties in the text itself and that we might not be able to be dogmatic and don't need to be dogmatic on about every detail of the text. What is true, though, is that when John writes this passage and he writes, and you see in a moment, some of the more difficult parts of interpretation, some of the things that for us now elude us as far as their meaning is concerned. He is not concerned though that his initial congregation have any trouble in understanding what he says. He makes, he asserts these things. Um, Let me read verses 16 and 17 and you're hearing again. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin that doesn't lead to death, he will ask, so pray for him and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Uh, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. And he doesn't, verses 18 and 19 are not especially further clarifications or explanations of those two verses I've just read. He's quite confident that the believers, based on certain, I imagine, theological assumptions they already hold, can understand what he is saying in those verses. Now, with that being the case, then it, it does suggest that we should be able to gain something, some, 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 something from these verses, that we should be able to read these verses and make some kind of, get some kind of meaning from them and um, make some kind of suggestions and learn something from that. That's what I want to do with you this morning. So this morning, I want to kind of unfold for you what probably makes the verses quite difficult. So the key points of uh, debate as far as interpretation is concerned, suggest what um, I think the best way to 
explain the verses are. So basically what I think John is saying, uh, what is going on in the text. And from that then make certain applications, um, five applications I want to make in closing. So those will be like the five headings you need to bear in mind. Uh, so we're going to run, work through the text together and then I'm going to make those five assertions and say, listen, these are, these are the things that we, we, we see in, in the text and based on how we sh I think we should interpret the text, uh, things that John emphasizes by, um, by, 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 by what he said there. So we, we come to this text where, where John is speaking about, um, at least on the face of it, right? John, John speaks about this, about, about how Christians should respond to sin in their community. Um, he's talking about the possibilities of sin being in the Christian community. Now, um, that's not really, I think for the most part amongst Christians, and even within the New Testament context, well, especially in the New Testament context, that's not a very controversial thing to hear, unless you're kind of falling along some um, you know, bad teaching, which, by the way, is the case here, right? So it's not a very special thing to assert that there can be, Christ there can be sin in the Christian community. And I don't think John's initial um, explanation of how we should respond to sin in the Christian community, which is that we should pray for someone else who sins. So John is speaking about how intercession is valuable for, um, for, for repentance, I think, and for how we deal with sin. Those assertions are probably not very controversial for us. So the idea that there's sin in the Christian community, uh, unless, as I say, you've come across bad teaching, which is exactly what's happening here, right? And so that, that kind of might give us some, some sense of why John sees the need to make the, the, the statement at this point, right? Um, but but it, by itself, that doesn't cause much controversy. The, the, the difficulties are the qualifiers that John adds to sin in, right? If you see your brother sinning a sin, okay, we, yeah, Christians, we get that, Christians sin. But this is, he makes a distinction between a sin that leads to death and one that does not lead to death. Now, that qualifier is not as easy to understand. That's not as easy to understand. It's easy to understand that Christians sin. Not as easy to understand that there's a sin that leads to death and there's a sin that does not lead to death. Now, let, me, let, me, let me again stress what I think the significance of John just speaking about this is here. So if we can agree that John is speaking about sin in the Christian community, the sin in the, in, the, in the congregation and how Christians deal with that and the realities of how Christians deal with that. Why does he bring that up here? Well, immediate, in the immediate context, one thing is John says when Christians sin, something that's vital about it, and I'll be stressing that in a moment, is prayer. Right? When Christians sin, one vital thing about how they deal with it, and especially in this context, within the church and fellowship, is that they pray for each other because prayer really affects things. God responds to prayer and he, he delivers Christians from sin, right? And in the immediate context, he's been talking about prayer. He's been talking about how prayer, so you remember the sermon from last, last Lord's Day, how prayer is, is a vital aspect of Christian assurance. One of the ways that Christians experience this assurance that they're children of God is by the access, the boldness, the freeness and the way they experience the graciousness and magnanimity of God in prayer. God is really liberal to us in prayer, asking us to ask for whatever we want, and he gives it to us. In one sense, I think John is saying, 
that even affects, that, that, that's even true when it comes to sin. Right? Prayer is so powerful, and God is so gracious to us in prayer that he's pleased to use prayer as a means to allow you to experience the grace of Jesus Christ that delivers us from sin, that, 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 that cleanses us of sin. Prayer is a means, it's a tool, it's an instrument by which that happens. So that's one thing in the immediate context. But I think even in the more wider context in which John speaking about prayer is because he wants to encourage these believers towards assurance. So the reason why we're talking about prayer in the first place is because of assurance. Why then is the subject of sin in the Christian community a matter of assurance? Why does it affect, why would it affect this congregation? Why does John think as he brings his epistle to a close, why does he think, in verse 13, remember he says, I really want these guys to know that they have eternal life. Why does sin affect the extent to which Christians can apprehend that? Why, why does sin, why would sin make Christians doubt? Now you can answer that question, probably you're, you're thinking of many ways you can answer that. You can think of many ways that sin actually affects assurance. You could probably see it quite easily. But it's important to just stick to why John might see it. And we get that from just reading the wider context of John's epistle. Now, one of John's central kind of concerns from the moment he starts his, his epistle, so you go all the way back to First John chapter 1, he, he, he actually says to this congregation who maybe have been, they're, they're now being diverted from the truth, they're, they're being distracted from the truth, or at least they've seen many people fall away from the truth. He says to them, he says, do you remember that when we taught you the gospel, when we preached this message of the gospel to you, the central burden, the central theme, you could have summarized our claims in this one statement, verse 5 of chapter 1, God is light. That's a strange way to summarize the gospel. I remember preaching, when I was preaching this text a few yeah, months ago, uh, maybe a year almost ago, um, I was saying that I've hardly come across a summarization of the gospel. Summary of the gospel says, what we preach here is God is light. This church teaches that God is light, right? I've never really seen that. Okay, I've seen churches that have the weirdest kind of names, but as far as summarizing our message is that. That's what John says. Now, he's not saying that's all there is to the message as it was, but he is saying you could fundamentally summarize the message that way. Why? Well, it's pastoral. That is, John is responding to a situation where the gospel has been so distorted that, as he says, there are people claiming that you can believe in Jesus Christ and still walk in darkness. Or you can say you're a Christian and ignore God's moral excellence, ignore God's purity. You can believe in the grace of Jesus Christ and not care, give a care about holiness. And so he says, remember, our, our, our message to you was that God is light. In him there is no darkness. And throughout the epistle, he enforces this. Because God is light and in him is no darkness, those who believe in him must be full of light. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, then, who is a son of God, can't live in sin. In fact, John is, he is a bit, he, he's forceful. John says, 
Christians don't even sin. Now, the, 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 the nuances in what he's saying there, the richness of his saying, I, I've stressed throughout the, this series, and I'll look, at, look a bit at uh, next, uh, next week. But, 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 but it's, suffice to say this, that John's point is that when you believe in Jesus Christ, the, one of the, the very first thing he does is he deals with your sin. He expunges it so that if you're in Christ, you're not in sin. So in one sense, Christians don't sin. They're free from sin. They're, and their entire lives on this earth is a pilgrimage journey towards seeing the bondage of sin being broken away from them till the day they see him and they're just like he is and there's no more sin for them. So Christians have really seen the victory of God in them over sin. In that sense, a Christian can say, I'm, I, I don't sin. I'm not in sin. Certainly. A Christian does not sin because he's in Christ. John has said that much. He's been forceful. Well, John is aware of this himself. So at one point after he said that, God is light, in him is no darkness at all. John is also conscious of the fact that a Christian could hear that and say, wow, what does that mean for me? Because I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that God is light. And I believe that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you're free from the bondage of sin. And you should press on in holiness. But I still sin. I do sin. I do sin in my do see sin in my life sometimes. I do have periods of sin. I battle with, I struggle with, with, with sinful habits, with besetting sins. And John is aware of that. And so John says, he says it already in chapter one. To walk in the light for John, right, is to so trust in Jesus Christ that you know, verse seven. That, that his blood cleanses you from all your sin. That's an amazing juxtaposition of verses there. John, what does it mean to walk in the light? He says, to know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you of all your sin. And to be so convinced of that, that it doesn't mean that you go on sinning, but that you know that if and when you do sin, you have Jesus Christ whose blood always cleanses your sin. And he continues to intercede for you. So the point that John is making in this closing section, he's already made in the opening section. The point he's making here by introducing in more detail what it looks like for Christians to experience rest restoration, repentance, for Christians to walk in the light and still deal with sin, how is that consistent? The point he has made in balancing those two things, he's made early on in the chapter. He's just stressing that again. Because he realizes that sin is such a mysterious thing. And it is a mysterious thing to understand how sin can dwell in the presence of the holy and the sacred. I read Numbers chapter 4 to you. Uh, sorry, Levit Leviticus chapter 4. And if you heard the reading, you could see the attention to detail. You could, you could see the, the, the ceremony of the Old Testament sacrifice. And one thing it was teaching God's people in those times was how serious a thing sin is was how mysterious a thing sin is. How sin requires blood to be shed because it's a matter of life and death. And the mystery of sin cannot be lost on us. It's a complex, complex thing to know how men and women who have the Holy Spirit, for example, still sin. How those of you who are going to hear me extol and, and pronounce and proclaim the glories of Jesus, the saving Lamb of God, are still going to go home and wrestle with your sin. 
and you, and you will still sin. How the same heart can say, my Jesus, I love you, and still give itself to sin. It's a great mystery. One, if, one which if a wise pastor and an inspired speaker like John does not hold intention for us, can absolutely crush us. Or, by the way, it can lead you down the road of what happens in First Chapter John, in, in the book of sorry, First John, down the road of false teachers who basically say that we don't sin. That's exactly how these false teachers respond when they, when when they have to, when they when they're ready to proclaim their own false gospel, and a false gospel doesn't save, a false gospel doesn't reassure. They're proclaiming a gospel that doesn't have the Jesus of the Bible, and there's no power in that gospel. It's a form of godliness, but there's no power. And when they're confronted with, how does your gospel deal with sin? The inability to make any reasonable, give any reasonable answer for that, for that leads them down the road of just saying, listen, we have no sin. That's why early on in, first chapter, in, John, in 1 John chapter 1, John says, if you say you have no sin, right? We're deceiving ourselves. It's a jab at these false teachers who basically, in trying to answer how they can be holy in this world without having a God-man making atonement, I just left to say something like, well, well uh, there's no sin. And it's Christians grappling with how, 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 how did sin enter into our world? How, how did, reading Genesis the other day, and you're thinking, how, how did sin present itself in, 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 in the hearts of two perfect people? So that when we're reading the story of Adam and Eve, we see Eve eating of that fruit way before she takes a bite. And you're thinking, how did you get there? And no Christian theologian has been able to answer Apart from being able to affirm that it's happening, and, uh, and, 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 and John is clear here, the only answer for it is to bask in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, which doesn't give you a license to sin, but gives you cleansing from sin. And so that's why this, that's why this is here, because John is concerned to deal with the assurance that God provides for his people. And he understands how misunderstanding the existence of sin and sinfulness in a redeemed body and redeemed life can send you down just the wrong path. And so that's the reason why this is here. Because not understanding sin can be devastating to Christian assurance. Devastating to the Christian faith. And still, even if we can fit it within the context, there's still difficult questions. What does he mean when he says that there is a sin that leads to death? So we, we kind of know what it means. We know what it means to sin. Sin is the violation of God's law. Sin is breaking God's commandments. In 1 John, sin is a failure to love your brothers and sisters. Any kind of hatred, any walking in hatred. Sin is any kind of denial of God's eth ethical rule. That means that we just do what we want. God says we shouldn't lie. We lie as we please. We steal. We, um, we live lives of sexual immorality. Sin is that. Sin is also not believing what God has said about his word, about his son. That's also sin, denying the Jesus Christ of the Bible. So we know what it is to sin. But how can you sin in such a way that leads to death? And in a way that does not lead to death? What does that qualifier mean? Now, all of these things, I'm, the, the, the suggestions I'm about to deny have been, have, are suggesting that some people still defend today. I just don't think you can defend them faithfully from 1 John chapter 5. So when John says, there is a sin that leads to death. I don't think you can say that John is speaking about physical death. Now, of course, in a sense, all sin leads to death. 
Right? Sin, the wages of sin is death. But in this particular verse, John, I don't think you can say, has physical death. In. So he's not saying, like, there, there's a sin that leads to physical death. Now, there is actually such a sin. We, we see that in the, new, in, the, in the scriptures. There are times when God brings death as the instant kind of judgment for a sin. So not the fact that we all die because we've all sinned, but actually God in responding to a present sin, judgment is, is instant death. So you know the example I have in mind, Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, right? That's, that's one example of that. And then there's actually other examples that you can defend. From the scriptures in Titus, let's, you know, listen, sometimes God responds by giving people death. And there's no reason for me to think that God couldn't do that today. I, I don't think that we can, we, can, we can say when that happens or not, but it's not my place to say that that doesn't happen. I just don't think that's what John is speaking about in 1 John chapter 5. That is, he's not saying that there are some sins that you commit and God is going to kill you instantly for them, or the punishment of that sin is instant judgment, and there's some sins that you can commit and the punishment is not instant uh, in, in death, sorry, judgment by instant death. And simply because that's just not how John is using death and life in his epistle. So when you read through um, uh, 1 John chapter 5, it's just not the way that John speaks about death. So let me read one verse, for example, in chapter 3 uh, and verse 14. First John chapter 3 verse 14, John says, um, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Because we love God's people. How could you pass from death into life if that was physical death? No, he's using death in the same way that death is used, say, for example, in Genesis 3, 2 and 3. When, Jesus Christ, when, when, when God is, is warning Adam and Eve that if, you know, you eat from, the day you eat from that tree, you will die. And when, we, when, when Christians are asked the question, did they die? We say, absolutely. Their death was a separation from God that unchecked, unresolved, unatoned for, would lead to eternal death. And I think that's the sense in which John uses death and life. Death is separation from God that results ultimately in a final condemnation, eternal death. Life is being united to Jesus Christ so you know that everything he has achieved, all the benefits he has achieved on, he has earned on the cross of Calvary by paying for your sins are now yours. That includes Eternity, which is essentially fellowship with God. Those who are in fellowship with God are going to live forever because God lives forever. And when you're in fellowship with God, wherever he's going, he's taking, he's taking you with him. And God will be alive forever. And so in that sense, for John, not only is death not physical death, but life is not simply about time. It's about being in fellowship with God. It's about, it's about knowing that God's, God, God, you abide in God and he abides in you. That's life. It's, 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 it's not just... Uh, about a quantity, if you want, it's a quality. It's the very presence of God. So that's one thing. When John says that there's a sin that leads to death, he's saying there's a sin that tells you this person is going to be condemned for eternity. There is a sin that tells you this person is separated from God forever. There's a sin that tells you this person is damned. But there's a sin, he says, and let's be clear, this is John's primary concern in 1 John chapter 5, to speak about the sin that does not lead to death. Right? That's John's primary concern. The sin that does not lead to death. The sin that does not mean that someone is finally separated from God. So John is saying, one way for Christians to 
balance the tension of sinning being a reality in their lives and in their congregation is knowing that there are some sins that, that, that ultimately do not mean we are separated from God, right? Uh, and in a moment, you know, we see why in a moment. So one thing is, that, that's what I think he's saying when he says, there's a sin that leads to death, a sin that does not lead to death. But what is, what do you have to do to be in this place? What is the sin then that someone commits that does not lead to death? What is a sin that you can classify as, this is what you do and it leads to death? That's another question, right? So you could say, for example, um, as uh, Roman Catholicism was fond, is fond of saying, that you could separate sin into two types of sins, mortal sins, venial sins. Venial sins are kind of like trivial, less serious sins. And so those less serious sins, do not. there's forgiveness for them. But there's mortal sins, sins like adultery, murder, sins that you just wouldn't expect a Christian to commit. And those sins, they lead to death. Now, just before, and I'm, I am about to say I don't think that, that's true, but just before we discard that, I read, I read the book of Leviticus chapter 4 for that reason as well, to show you that actually there did exist in the, New, in, in the Old Testament this way of explaining differences between sins. So when we read Le Leviticus chapter 4, that was speaking about what, what are often called sins of omission, there's certain kinds of sins that the, New, the Old Testament will say they weren't high-handed. They weren't done arrogantly. This wasn't someone absolutely choosing to just defy the will of God. And, and, and those sins would have included stuff like murder, stuff like adultery. That's why there were some sins that had no sacrifice in the Old Testament. You, you were the sacrifice. There were some sins that if you committed, really, apart from the Day of Atonement when all sins were dealt with, if you were found committing them, capital punishment type thing. There were other sins that you could come to confess to the priest. So there were some sins that if you came to the priest and said, I did this, the priest would tell you, just go back home with that, um, go back home with that sacrifice, go to the government instead type thing, right? There were some sins like that. And so there did exist that sort of way of thinking through sins in the Old Testament. And it, it, it's possible that John has something of that this differentiation in mind. What is not possible, though, is to, to read this, I think, and say that, John gives us any hint of there being a sin that the blood of Jesus Christ cannot cleanse. Now, absolutely, I grant that there are sins that these blood of, the blood of bulls couldn't cleanse. So God couldn't have a system where you guys were killing everybody in, in a kind of uh, theocratic nation like Israel. People were just killing and saying, but, I, but I, I, brought, um, I brought a sacrifice, so let it go. You couldn't have that. When it was the blood of bulls and goats. But I don't think that's true for the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse every sin. And so, I don't think that's the way to, to think of it. What's the sin that leads to death that we can say this person is, is doomed? What, David's sin, maybe? Sins get more worse than that? But don't think so. But no one claims that David is not redeemed, right? So we know that the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses of all sins. And we don't want to fall into the trap of saying that we know the sins that Christians can, we just know the, the, the group of sins that Christians cannot commit. That's not, that's not a New Testament view. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't write to Christians saying, those of you who are stealing need to stop. Right? He wouldn't write to Christians saying, you know your bodies are the temple, you shouldn't be prostituting it. If he thought there were sins that Christians were beyond. So I don't think that's the way to define it. Again, you just go back to the context of 1 John. And actually, very often when John is speaking about those 
whose sins reveal that they don't belong to the Lord. What he has in mind are the kinds of people he spoke about in first, in earlier in chapter 2, uh, when he says that some left us because they were not of us. So I think essentially, John has in mind that the sins that you commit that result in, in death, in that kind of spiritual death, are those sins where someone is fundamentally denying the saving work of Jesus Christ. Right? Someone who by... One, of, one, one obvious example is somebody who is denying that Jesus is Lord. Like there were people in this, in this passage. People who were saying, we don't think Jesus Christ is God, man. We don't think he rose again. We don't think he came as a... And John says, because you don't have a Jesus that can save you, you're committing a sin that leads to eternal damnation. But I don't want to say that John relegates that to just doctrinal sins. I think John can have, he has space for ethical sins, for sins of the heart, right? The Christian person who is so at odds with someone in the congregation that although the church brings them together and pleads with them to forgive and resolve, they, they ultimately say, you know what, if that's what it means, that for me to forgive this person, for me to, 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 be a, to be right with the Lord, I have to forgive this person, then I, I won't do church. I'm going to leave church. I'm going to stay out of church because I'm not about to forgive that, 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 that offense against me. That person, removing themselves under the, from the covering of, of the church, as it were, saying, I, I'm not going to obey Jesus in this, that person could be committing that sin that leads to death. The, 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 the man or woman who enters into a marriage with, who wants to marry this unbelieving spouse, they, they met this person, the unbeliever, and the church says, you have to marry in the Lord. This is not right. You can't join yourself to this person. They say, well, you know what? I follow the rules of Jesus Christ so far, but man, if this is what it takes, I, I'm just not ready to, I, I'm willing to forgo the marriage to Christ for the marriage to, to this person. We, we look at that person and we say, this is a sin that leads to death. The person who, who decides that after years of struggling with their same-sex attraction and recognizing that and feeling like the struggle is, is way too heavy and is drawn by the rhetoric of the world that says your sexuality is your identity and then says, you know what, I don't think I can serve a Jesus. I don't think I can believe a Bible that uh, says that God has the right to dictate what I do with my sexuality, and so I'm going to forsake, I'm going to, I'm going to leave the church, I'm going to leave this evangelical church, I'm going to head down to that church down the road that allows me to live in darkness and still be a Christian. That person, we say, that's a sin that leads to death. person who says, I find Christianity just inadequate when it comes to responding to social issues, and I think a lot of it has to do with what you believe about certain parts of the Bible. And uh, I, I've just lost confidence in, in the Apostle Paul and his ability to speak authoritatively on things. I just think he was, he was he, there's no way he was inspired. I think he was primitive. And so they denied Paul's uh, authority. And once they start to undermine Paul's authority of the, in the Scriptures, they have to undermine the Scriptures itself and the New Testament. And once you start to undermine the New Testament, Jesus Christ becomes undermined and the Gospel is undermined. And, and so they find some other kind of liberal religion that maybe unites all the religions of the world. That kind of person... When they walk out of those doors, you say, this person has sinned a sin that leads to death. This, this sin that does not issue out in repentance. 
This sin that does not end with restoration, with returning to Jesus Christ saying, to whom can I go? You have the words of eternal life. John doesn't even think Christians can commit that sin. So notice, that, notice how he, this, this is revealed in verse John chapter 16. And this is another thing. It's another issue of interpretation. Can a Christian commit this sin that leads to death? Well, John's language is interesting. He says in verse 16, if you see your brother committing the sin that does not lead to death, so a Christian can commit that one. But he doesn't say the same for the sin that does not lead to death. Just like he's suggestion for prayer, he's unsure about that. And if this person persists in that sin, they certainly weren't a brother. Right? John doesn't think that a Christian can commit a sin that finally separates, not a true believer. There might be those believers who we spoke of earlier who they left us because they were never really of us. So for a season they looked like they were of us, but ultimately they, they weren't of us. So this sin that leads to death is not even a sin that John believes a true believer can commit. But pastorally, we cannot finally determine someone's eternal destiny. So it is possible. John, John, I think John appreciates that it's possible that on the face of it, it might seem like this Christian is going down that road. Uh, but God could also restore that person. But, uh, but, but as far as... The sin that John has in mind, that John is saying, listen, these, the, 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 these, the sin that leads to death is a sin that leads to eternal condemnation. It's a rejection of the way of Christ. And a Christian just never does that. Whether it's in the doctrinal realm, so what Christ teaches about himself, or in the ethical realm, how Christ tells us that we should live, or in the, uh, the agapic realm, the realm of love, relational realm, how Christ teaches us that we should treat other people, like forgiveness. And John says, though, that as far as the sin that does not lead to death is concerned, that sin that Christians actually commit, for that sin, John says something so curious, so, so amazing. It's a privilege. It's, it's daunting. He says, if you see your brother committing that sin, so these are sins that Christians know that Christians fall into. You can, you can see a, your, your, your brother committing that sin. I don't think John is saying you're policing, every, now police everyone in church and say, let me see. But John is saying, listen, when, when that happens, when sin rises up in the life of the church, he says you can pray for this person and God will give them life. Now, what does that mean? And I think carrying on with the suggestion that life is, in, in First John, life is more than a quantitative thing is also a qualitative thing. I think John is saying, they'll experience restoration to fellowship with God. There are sins that do not lead to a final separation from God. There are sins that make you think this person, this person is currently, in a, their spiritual life is in a bad state, it's in a bad way. There are sins that make you know this person needs to repent. This person needs to be restored. There are sins that make you say, listen, this person needs to confess their sin so that it can be cleansed of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's not that Christ dies again, or his work is repeated. That's a relational thing. It's the purifying of the conscience. It's this person experiencing, once again, harmony with the Lord. It's, it's longing for a closer walk with God. And John, John says that when you see your fellow believers sometimes falling into the kind of sin that makes you think they're breathing the breath of death, if you pray for them, God uses your prayer to revive them, to give them life. 
a fruitful life. They experience forgiveness. They experience repentance. And, and I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but what John is basically saying is, listen, in the Christian church, there will be power through prayer for believers not to be overcome by sin. Just the last thing as far as this text is concerned, as far as just the, the different inter interpretation issues. The last thing is just John's vagueness about the sin that does lead to death. So when, how about the sin that does lead to death, John? How about this brother joined the church together, now is denying, is denying Jesus Christ and saying they don't, they don't know if they can believe that Jesus was God. And John says, I can't tell you to pray for that person. I'm not going to say that you should pray. I think that's what John said. I think John basically says, I have to leave that to you. But I'm not saying that you're, I'm not saying you owe that person prayer. And that's an interesting way to phrase it. Why is this the case? And that, it's, it's a difficult thing, but why is John saying that? Just, just one thing is that I think we presume too much that we understand the way the grace of God works. If John hadn't spoken this, some of you would be saying to John, what? Of course you have to keep praying. You know, of course you have to keep praying. And John says, actually, no. Sometimes when you say, this person, I don't owe them prayer. There's a sense in which you owe your brothers and sisters in Christ. As, as far as their sins are concerned, the response to their sins has to be praying for them. You owe them that. John is talking about a situation where actually, think about false teachers. How does the Bible speak about false teachers? False teachers that sometimes arise in the midst of the congregation, amongst the congregants. You know, very often, John, the, the, sorry, the, the New Testament talks about false teachers, they're, they're, they're destined for destruction. They're enemies of the cross. The New Testament doesn't tell you to pray for them. And so we, we, we must not presume that we understand how the grace of God works. But just some, some other reasons, some other things I think might be in John, John's mind here. So he's dealing with this issue of someone who has committed the sin that leads to death. Someone who, you have to say, this person is apostatizing and should be rejected by the church. And he's saying, one, there's no promise that God will restore that person. There is a promise that God will restore his people when they sin. When they sin those sins that don't lead to death. When they sin those sins that are the reality of fighting against sin. There is a promise that God will restore them. God promises to do that. So you can take that promise with you to heaven. But John does not have a promise for those who reject God in this way. There's no promise. God may do that, but actually the language of the scriptures when it comes to those who reject and who apostatize and who turn away from Jesus is, listen, it's impossible, Hebrews chapter 6, in the case of those ones to, be, to restore them again to repentance. There is some kind of finality that sometimes shows itself. There's a finality that sometimes shows itself in rejecting the gospel. When you once knew it, you turn away from it, that John cannot speak to. He cannot speak to whether that's final or not. Now, at the same time, while he, doesn't have a, while he doesn't have a promise, in the same way he has a promise for a Christian who sins, he also knows that he cannot legislate for how Christians should pray. Not, at least not, he can't micromanage our prayer requests. There's no way you can tell a Christian every single thing they're allowed to pray for and not allowed to pray for. You tell Christians to pray in accordance with the will of God. You tell prayers, um, Christians to search their hearts. But even after they've done that, there's still a million ways you can pray, and I wouldn't know if it's the right way for you to pray or not. So, for example, take that example of false teachers. You could be on your knees interceding for you fill in the blank. And 
Listen, I could say he's a false teacher, and you could agree with me. And I could say, I think his law is condemnation. But we certainly don't know that, for, absolutely, we know that as he continues in this pattern of teaching falsely, his destiny is destruction. But we, can't, we, we certainly can't say that God could not, in his sovereignty, choose to change this man, to bring him to the place of correctness. And because of that, John can't speak absolutely to that. He can't say, don't pray for that false teacher. He's, he can't say that. But also, he's not going to force any Christian to do that. So you can't say, listen, believers, you can't say to the Christians, let's not condemn false teachers. Let's not speak against the ministry. Let's just pray for them. Uh-uh, you can't say that. But if a Christian, after we have said, this guy's ministry is false, if a Christian still decides that he wants to pray because they know that God is the God of the universe and he does as he pleases, then John can't legislate for that. He's not going to do that. He's not going to try and attempt to intrude in that sacred place. And this is another thing. This is John just recognizing and just affirming how much confidence he has in God's, how God loves the prayers of his people. So John's not going to so legislate for how they pray that he begins to then impinge in areas where God actually wants to do great things for them. John understands why a Christian goes to a place of prayer and asks for ridiculous things. I heard a couple, I think it's maybe a year ago, just a few months ago, there's a church in the United States where a family lost their child, two-year-old child, and for, another, for a couple of days, they had the child in the church, they, they wouldn't bury the child, praying for the resurrection. Now the family of the child were involved in that. Now when, when all is said and done, as far as that particular case is concerned, that was a case of bad teaching. She's going to a bad church anyway, so they were always going to do something as outlandish as that. It, was, it, it wasn't the right decision to make at all. It's, just, it's a sad thing. However, I can understand how a Christian thinks God can raise my child from the dead. Now, now my, my, my theological convictions suggest to me that that's, I wouldn't ever really encourage someone to pray that way. I think the Bible also has, Paul can also say, listen, let's not weep as those who have no hope. So there's a place for weeping and recognizing that death is final. But, but my God is the God of the universe. I'm not going to deny that this person is affirming how powerful God is. So John's not going to legislate for how they pray because he wants them to still realize they can ask God for big things. And just because you, you are not going to ask God for something doesn't mean someone else won't. Just because God is not going to do something for you doesn't mean he's not going to do it for someone else. And so those are the difficult questions to ask. What is a sin unto death? What is a sin not unto death? How do you commit this sin? Um, what does it mean that a brother is going to restore life when, it's, when it, you restore life to a brother when you pray for them? And why does John not just say, don't pray for that person or pray for the person? Why does he leave an op open to uh, kind of interpretation? Well, that being said, I'm not going to remind you how many applications I, I said I had. I'm going to make these closing applications. I think you, you draw them from the text. First of all, it's just the relationship between prayer and sin. The relationship between prayer and sin. And it's something that we just cannot afford to forget. How could we, when our Savior himself, in some of his last statements on the earth, said, Watch and pray. Be vigilant in the place of prayer. Why? Because of this particular reason. So that you don't fall into sin. Prayer is going to be a vital, vital element about, of, of how you, dis, you deal with your, with your sinfulness in this world. That's why when John earlier on in this epistle is dealing with that tension of being sinners who are still called to walk in the light, he says, one of the things we do so that we live in the power of the gospel, so that God's light doesn't seem like it's a light that is going to 
blind us and destroy us is that we confess. It's the language of prayer. Prayer is always going to be vital to how we understand sin, to how we deal with sin, to how you and I deal with the tension of being sinful, even though we claim to love Jesus Christ. Prayer. Never forget that. And it's not just confession. In particular, in this text, it's intercession. Not only does prayer work for you when you confess your sins, and when you cry out to God to give you grace, and when you cry out to God to remind you that not only are you praying, but Jesus is praying for you, it also works when you do it for other people. When you pray for that other brother, when you pray for that other sister, it works there too. In fact, the way to deal with sin in the church is by praying. That's our power. And of course, this is not just a reactive thing. Not only are we praying when we sin so that we can experience the restoration and the grace and, the, and we, can, we can feel it and we can make sure that we don't, we don't run away with sin. Sin doesn't deceive us. But we're also praying so that we can stay away from sin. It's not just a reactive thing, it's a proactive thing. Sin is part of the, sorry, prayer is part of the arsenal with which we combat the enemy of sin. And do do we remember that? You know, some of us, we have particular sins we struggle with. And when you start to strategize about how you want to deal with this sin, and it's good, the Bible says watch, and you you want to be, you say, I'm going to, this is my sin. And you have a list of things, five or six strategies, and prayer is not on there. You just assume Apparently, you assume that you're going to pray. No, really and truly, what you think is prayer is not that great a thing. And yet, there's nothing more vital. In your seven steps, point one, point seven should have been prayer. I'm going to start by calling on God. I'm going to end by calling on God. Then you can add whatever you want. When you're in your, in your marriage, you're having issues. You say, listen, we have, why, why do we have problems? We're going to strategize. Um, we're going to give each other compliments. Uh, date night. I'll allow you self-care. I'll allow you to be by yourself for some time. This is not my show. I'm just, I've heard. Uh, we're going to read more books. We're going to do some therapy. We're going to, you know, to strengthen our marriage. Point one, point seven should have been prayer. Because without that, you have no power. You have no strength. Without that, you're depending way too much on your heart when you should be depending solely on the Lord. Prayer is the vital strategy for fighting against our sin. We don't, the church does not respond to sins of any kind with just strategies, with just legislation. And this is what we should be doing. Point one and point seven is always prayer. It's always prayer. The beginning and the end is always calling on the Lord because we rely on him. That's how we deal with our sin. Second thing, not just the relationship between prayer and sin, but the, 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 the reality that for John... The right response to sin in the church is prayer. Not condemnation, not gossip, not slandering, not looking down on folk, but prayer. You don't have a lot to say until you're willing to pray for this person. Right? This is how we should respond to the sins of others. A prayer that says, not that we're condoning sin, but a prayer that says, I trust that God will restore you. A prayer that says, I have a promise that God can restore my brothers and sisters. Not standing there in stupor and amazement. How could a Christian do this? How could a Christian do this? That's all you have to say. Uh, Okay, once maybe you could say that once. 
after you said it once, you go, go back and pray. It's testimony to what we believe about the gospel when we respond to sin that way. We, we say, there's a sin, there's, there's sin that kills, but I believe in the Jesus Christ who came to give life to sinners. I want to pray for you. It's how we should respond to sin. And it's unfortunate that we don't always pray enough for sin uh, in the churches. Now, I, I do think there's an element in this chapter that's about private prayer. So, so, so we should be praying for each other privately about our sins. And I, I'm not saying that people should always have to bring their, their sinful, their, their, their request about sin to like the prayer meeting. Because sometimes those things are intensely personal. I appreciate that. But the church should have a place for a collective kind of corporate sense of praying for sin. We should make it very clear that we do believe that God deals with our sins in prayer. That God forgives our sins. That, God, that we can confess our sins. That God restores his people. And it really does happen. But the right response from the church is prayer. That's how you should respond to the sins that you see. You see your sins in your church and you're concerned, make sure you responded first with prayer. You see your sins in, your, in this sister's life and you're like, make sure you responded also with prayer for that sister. Not denying that you might have to confront, not denying that you have to speak, about, but respond with prayer. Thirdly, the importance of the church to your spiritual life. Right? So the whole point here is, one of the vital ways by which these Christians will experience Life, a life-giving experience is by other Christians praying for them, right? Not, not, not now by your own praying, which, 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 is, which of course that's true as well. God hears your own prayer. But John is minded to speak about that, how that happens within community, how it happens in the church. You will pray for someone else. The church is vital to your spiritual well-being. It's a place where through the prayers of other believers, you receive life. So if you're not in a local church, if you're not in a church, how are you experiencing that? Who is seeing your sin and seeing your sinfulness when you're a church or by yourself? There's no time to rebuke that sort of thing like now in COVID season. Two things spring to mind. First of all, my internet ministry friends, I'm thankful for you. I, I used to beef you a lot before, but in COVID, we've needed you. So all that supplement stuff is good. Go and watch that brother's thing on YouTube. Go and, yeah, all, all good. It was great. It's good. But I can't wait for COVID to end so that some of you end too. Wait, wait, let me explain. You are not a church by teaching stuff on the internet. You can't take the place of that, of the vital life of the local church. God expects his people to assemble, and he has really ordained how that happens. It's in the local church. And I, I, was, I, was, I was exaggerating a bit. I'm not denying that there's useful internet ministries. Far from the case. Not denying that at all. But you're not useful as an internet ministry, for example, if you don't appreciate that you're not the local church. If you don't encourage your people to join local churches. If you're not part of a local church type thing, right? This is vital. You're, 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 if, you, if you become this internet space where everyone now, no local church, but we'll just, we log on to the internet to hear you preach, you're depriving your people of spiritual vitality. And the second group is those of us who might have fallen into the kind of stupor that thinks this is a good thing, that we don't have to go to church on Sunday morning. It's a good thing that I've not been around believers for months. Let me clarify by saying, of course, there are some of you who just, in God's providence, you cannot, and God knows. And I'm not referring to those brothers and sisters at all. But those of us who are happy to walk downstairs and keep watching a live stream, as though all that there was to the church was a sermon you could hear, you are showing us a, a serious naivety of what the spiritual life is. 
Those of you who only care about the pulpit, but not about the pew. Because he's not saying here that it's the pastor who prays. He says your brother prays for you. So church is not just about the ministry here. This is vital, but it's absolutely about the men and women that you rub shoulders with because you are brothers and sisters in Christ and how King Jesus chooses to use them to transform your life. Listen to the language. You will pray for that person and you will, you will give them life, it almost says. Now, of course, we don't give anybody life, but it's how Jesus Christ has chosen to use us. Don't be happy with an internet connection and ignore the congregation. I just had to drop that one in there. Don't, don't do that. You need God's people. You need them. You should be longing for them. And let me tell you this. If you're listening to me this morning and you know there's an apathy, you just know, actually, I'm, I'm good with this lack of responsibility. I'm good with this more selfish expression of the Christian faith, this individualistic expression. I'm not longing for them. That is a spiritual problem. It is a problem. And in the words of John, we must pray so that you receive life. You must pray so that God gives you the life, the life that loves his people and longs for his people. And just two more things. Believers can still sin. That's one thing that John shows us. Whatever we understand about the grace of Jesus Christ to us as Christians now, it doesn't mean that we don't still sin. We still have sin. And that's why John, is, John sets the high standard of the faith and still tells his Christians, but when you see a brother sinning, he doesn't say, when you see a brother sinning, tell him he doesn't know who he is in Christ. Or tell him, how can you sin? How, how dare you sin? What, what does sin even mean? Tell him, you can't be a Christian because you sin. He says, no. Pray for him that he might receive life. John is very clear that Christians can still sin. No understanding, and I believe we're united in Christ. I, I believe that Christ has set us free from the chains of sin. But honestly, an, an apprehension of that definitive way in which Jesus Christ has freed us from the bondage and the shackles of sin does not mean that we do not sin. It's not inconsistent with saying that Christians still sin. How can it be? Did you see what John said in this first chapter? First John chapter 1, he says, If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. This is the same man that has just said God is light and in him is no darkness. And yet for us, we dare not say we have no sin. No, our approach to sin is we confess our sin. And God is just to forgive us. And if anyone ever tells you that that passage was written to unbelievers, just tell them to be honest. There's no hint in 1 John, that he's concerned for unbelievers. As I told you in the past few weeks, he's writing to those who he wants to know that they have eternal life. And what does it mean to know that you have eternal life? To confess your sin. Christians still sin. What we have is an intercessor. What we have is Jesus, the great high priest. It's not so much about our perfection, it's about his. And his one is intact. But I'll close by saying this, and this is the fifth point. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death, but praise God, we have life through Jesus Christ. John says in verse 17, all wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. You know, one point that John is making there is, I'm not denying though, that every type of sin is a problem. All wrongdoing is sin. There is some sin that does not lead to death because Jesus Christ died for it. There is some sin that means you don't have to face death for it because Jesus took it in your place. But sin 
always leads to death. Redemption story is that your sin either leads to the death of your Savior, the death of the Savior so that you receive life, or your sin is going to lead you to eternal death. And so we must not take sin lightly. It leads to death. A pattern of sin is playing around with death. It's a matter of life and death. And so I'll close by saying just this. That there is this sin that finally destroys you. And it's the sin that wasn't paid for by the death of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning, if you're listening to me this morning, I want you to remember that trusting Jesus Christ is a matter of life and death. Because sin kills in a way that nothing else does. I believe that poverty kills. But poverty can only kill the body, cannot kill the soul. I believe that injustice kills. But injustice can only kill the body. It cannot kill the soul. I believe that bad health kills. But bad health can only kill the body. It cannot kill the soul. Sin kills the soul. Sin means you're separate, separate from God. And so all the good things you are taking care of, finances, justice, your body, that God gave you, sin actually separates you from the giver of those things. So that one day you stand before him and you face his wrath, eternal death. And I believe that money fixes some situations, but money cannot fix the soul. I believe that equality in society and justice in society fixes some situations. It cannot fix the soul. And good doctors and good surgeons and medicines, they fix certain situations. They cannot fix the soul. Only Christ can save. Only Christ can save us from death. Sin is currently killing you as we speak. And the only way to be free from his chains, the only way to be delivered from the one death that truly matters, because no matter how we live in this world, we're all going to die. That's, that's true. But there's one death that really matters. It's the death that is a separation from God. It's that eternal death. And the only way to be free from that is to trust the Jesus Christ who died for sinners. But because he didn't die because of his own sin, he died because of the sins of others. He's also able to give his eternal life to others. Jesus Christ came into the world, very God, died on the cross, was buried, rose again, so that he can give eternal life to those who believe. And I'll say this and be on my way. You know, you can have that life now. You experience that life now. If you do this one thing that John has already commended, if you pray, if you call on Jesus if you say, save me, I see how sin is working death in me. I see how I'm dying. I see how I'm separate from God. But save me, King Jesus. Don't pass me, gentle Savior. Come to me. Deal with me. Speak to me. Show me my foolishness. Deliver me. Forgive me. But save me. And Jesus Christ gives us eternal life. Amen.